All right, if you have your Bible or your phone, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. We've been in Timothy now for a few weeks, um, working our way through this letter from Paul, um, who's currently in, in Macedonia, written to Timothy, a younger brother and minister in the faith, um, not a little brother, but um, almost like a son to Paul, um, who is currently in Ephesus, ministering there. And Paul is writing, looking to encourage Timothy as the church is being built up in Ephesus. Um, there's false teaching that has arisen, and ultimately kind of the, the thrust of the letter that is both personally to Timothy, but also to be read in a larger context in the church, is that the church is supposed to be like the, this buttress of truth, this, the, the household of God in the community, where God is being worshipped rightfully um, in truth, and where the mission is going out, where others are, are having the opportunity to see God reflected, um, to come to faith in him so that God is receiving additional worship of which he is more than worthy of. And so this book is intensely practical because it's really setting up as, as the apostles, those who had walked with Jesus, are dying off and, and the church is going to continue, which we are recipients of some 1,900 years later, that they're setting up what is the church going to look like? How are we going to set up some, some systems that will allow the church to be healthy and functioning? Um, as a family. Um, and so it's, it's set up in, in an organic way, talking about it being the household with God at the head and us being a family, focusing, focused on mission and worship. And so if you'll read with me, we'll begin in verse 1 of chapter 5. And Paul writes to Timothy, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left alone, has set her hope on God, continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, um, but not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. For let the church not be burdened, so that it may, be, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. 
Right? We're going we're gonna to stop there. I feel like this portion, chapter 5, it feels like a letter, right? Like that, that, that Timothy's reading this and Paul has thought through this process. And he's just writing out this very practical section. And so the rest of 1 Timothy is going to be um, increasingly practical as he's laying out instructions specifically for the church in Ephesus, but also for churches who will read this afterwards. And so he begins, remember, Timothy's a younger man, um, most likely in his 30s, um, in a culture where they didn't really see true adulthood till roughly 40. He would have definitely been on the, the younger side of this. And so he is ministering, pastoring a congregation that is made up of older men and older women and younger men and younger women. Um, and I just want us to note that that is healthy and right. That sometimes there is a tendency in churches to want everyone to, to come around similar ages, right, or similar life stages. Like, we're going to put all the empty nesters here, and we're going to put all the younger folks here, and we're going to put all the singles here, and we're going to put all the, the widows here. And that's not, that's not what he's telling Timothy to do. He's, he's assuming and expecting the church to be multi-generational and multi-situational, right, both. And that that's, that's healthy, that we need the church to look like life, right, and to look like a family, that we're going to, that in a family we have nieces and nephews, right, children that are younger than us. We have cousins that are peers. We have aunts and uncles and parents, right, that are providing a lot of structure. And then we have grandparents, right, who are providing wisdom. And so assuming a, a, a moderately healthy family, right, where, where, where love and safety and security are provided in those relationships, you don't interact with your grandmother the same way you do with your cousin, right? Your relationship with your niece or your nephew is not the same as it, as it is with, with your uncle. That you relate to these people differently and that there is love that binds, right? There's this, this bond of family that connects, but you interact with these folks, all of whom are family in unique ways, right? And so for most of you, um, you probably weren't doing a lot of peer relationship things, right? going to movies, the things that most interested you in your hobbies with your grandparents, right? They, they would try to step into that a little bit, but it was different than doing it with a cousin who, who got it, right? But you probably, hopefully, weren't going to your cousins for wisdom, right? Hopefully, you're leaning into your grandparents for wisdom, right? That your, your aunts and uncles play this role of when your parents are, are right, leading you, disciplining you, that, that aunts and uncles have a way of affirming that without having to be as much in the fire, right? That they can be a sounding board as well as affirming what mom and dad are doing. That, that each of these family roles play a little different. And, and listen, you may have a special relationship with a grandparent or an aunt and uncle that becomes more like a peer relationship. Those things happen, right? But it, what he's reminding us is that in families, we call them family, we love them, but we don't interact with them all in the same way. And so he's telling Timothy this. Listen, when you go to an older man in the church and there's a need for correction, you don't walk in there like it's your buddy. You go in with respect. You go in with deference. right? You go in with affection. And so he's saying, I want you, young man, to imagine having to say something hard to your dad. Right, where you're not sure if you're going to walk out of the room alive, right? That you're not going to walk in there and kick the door down and say, all right, Dad, let me tell you what's up. Now, you might have at 16, right? But as you get older, 
you realize that's not wise and it's not helpful. And ultimately what it causes is problems and divisions. And so he's saying, look, if you have to deal with an, with an older man who is, is walking in sin or has some need of correction, and I think it's important that we note that he's not saying, hey, you don't ever do that. That if they're older than you, that you can't say something. If they're older than you, they're not messing up. He's like, you go in with respect in a way that would allow you to think about how you would talk to your own father in hopes that things would change or twist or turn back towards health and reconciliation and would not create greater issue, right? That we don't handle the way we would maybe a lunch with a peer where we're just going to kind of kick his rear end for a little while. You don't go talk to an older man that way. You show respect. And he says, likewise, with older women, think of them as your mother and younger women as sisters, right? In a culture, he's saying, look, if the church is supposed to be the buttress of truth, if it's supposed to be where mission is coming out of, how you're interacting with women matters. And so you need to do these things in purity. And so you don't look at them as something to take advantage of. You look at them as sisters and as mothers. You need to think of them in that family relationship where your sister and your mother should feel safe with you, a grown man. There should be security there. There should be respect there and trust there. And so he's reminding him, look, you need to minister to the men, to the women, to the older, to the younger, but you're going to handle these relationships different. There will not be the same type of conversation or, or intimacy in all of these. But Timothy, you pastor them well. Then these relationships would be marked by love, by being above reproach, by purity, and then what he's going to spend the rest of this section doing is he's going to focus specifically on one group in the church. He's going to focus on widows. Um, not only older women, but mostly older women in this context. In our culture, we don't throw the word widow around a lot. I was watching, Carson was watching Little House on the Prairie this week. And watching it, and, and remember there was a day where you would call someone, if they were a widow, you would, that's Widow Smith. Right? That's Widow Jones. Like that's, that became like this, this thing that you knew them as and you called them by that. I don't, I've never heard someone actually do that in my life. Right? They never referred to someone, well, that's, you know, that's Widow Jones over there. Like you, we just, so Widow, I think, has taken on a little different um, context in, in our current culture. But in this culture that Timothy is receiving this letter in, widows were in a precarious situation. Because their identity was attached to either their husband or their father, right? Depending on how old they were. That they would have been given a dowry when they got married that was their family giving money to kind of take care of them. Um, but depending on the, the circumstances of that, it could have passed, bypassed them and gone, if they have children now, it could have gone directly to their kids. And so if their husband dies and their father has also died, they're, they're left unattached, unsecured. In a, in a difficult situation. And so, in a, in a culture that would often devalue women, where their social um, circumstances were based on who they were attached to, their dad and his reputation, their husband and his reputation, right, that this begins to be a, a necessary component that feels a little foreign to us in our culture, in our situation. But listen, there are still parts of the world that this is as big of an issue. Um, in, in the Middle East, in much of the conservative areas, you will not see a woman in the street without a man. And if you see her with a man, you know that he is one of three people, and only one of three people. That is her father, 
that is her husband or it's her adult son, right? Like those are the, inter- the interactions that she has. Um, once she's past, you know, puberty, she's probably not even with an uncle at that point anymore, except in a very rare circumstance. And that she would be known and associated by the man that she's with, um, that he would, and so in, in Middle Eastern culture, if you divorce your husband, he keeps the kids. Like you don't even have that right, right? The, the, the women in that culture are set in a very precarious situation of not being able to change their circumstances. Often, or very likely, what is the situation we're dealing here it, with first century kind of Roman culture is that women were in dangerous setting here if they did not have a husband or a father looking after them. Now, what's going on in Rome, though, is we have some women looking to set out kind of, um, it's almost like a, a feminist movement, looking to take themselves out from underneath men in this situation. And so Paul is elevating women. He's saying, look, this is not about who they're associated with, whether it's their husband or their father. It's they have value in and of themselves, not to what their social standing, but because of who they are. They are not going to be defined just by a man. They're not going to be second-class citizens. They have dignity and attention and notice and worth as individuals. And so he wants to begin to kind of walk through church. Here's how we're going to interact with them. And he's going to walk through several different circumstances. I think it's important for us to know that in Scripture we see the, the term widow a lot. In Acts 6, it's where we first are introduced to deacons because the widows are not being taken care of in a fair fashion. Some are receiving better resources than others. And so they they bring the deacons in to make sure that the resources that are going out are going both to the, the Greek and the Jewish background believers in fairness. We know in James 1.27 that James says, what is true religion, Right? But it's the care for widows and orphans and remaining, keeping yourself unspotted from the world. Even Jesus on the cross in John 19, as he is headed towards death, he writes this in verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, which is John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home, right? That Jesus, even knowing and understanding the culture, is saying, look, I want my mom taken care of. I want this woman taken care of. In Deuteronomy 24, we see this. We'll see that this is a theme throughout Scripture. Verse 17 of chapter 24. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner, which is the the alien, the immigrant, or to the fatherless, or take a widow's garment and pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. That throughout scripture, it's rooted in the fifth commandment to honor your mother and your father. Right, that, that, that widows are to be taken care of, that those in society who cannot, cannot fix their situation are to be cared for and to be shown specific concern. And so what Paul does is he begins to distinguish between different types of widows here. And so in the first one, he does this. He, wants, he says, I want to talk about those who are truly widows. Look at verse 3. Honor widows who are truly widows. And because he, he continues in verse 4, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. 
what he's giving us here, we talked about this last week, that godliness is the intersection of the knowledge that we have of God and our behavior, right? And where those intersect in, in, our, in our life, that is godliness, because our behavior is mirroring the things that we know, we trust, and we believe. And so we have an opportunity this week um, and, and this last week as teachers and students are going back to school that we get to see godliness as students. We get to see godliness as teachers as they go back into the rhythms for the next nine months. That, that those things intersect in difficult environments, right? That we want to be prayerful um, for teachers and, and students this week. But what Paul is doing is he's saying, look, there's a place where we need to understand that the way that you think about these women in the church who cannot fix their situation is a, is a place where you can actually please and worship and honor God. He's reminding them that it's not just in teaching, it's not just in overt spiritual activity, but it's in the very mundane things of life and how we view people, how we value people, and how we care for people, that it is worship. And so his first kind of, his first command is this, that if a woman who has lost her husband has family, they need to step up, right? And he gives four specific ways. In verse one, sorry, the first one in verse four. If a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and listen, to make some returns to their parents. He's basically saying, your parents took care of you, repay them, right? Like you take it upon yourself to care for your family, for these in your family. The second one is this, that it's worship. He says, I want you to take care of them, repay them, but I also want you to do it because it's worship. It pleases God when you take care of your family. Verse four as well. Verse three, or the third one is in verse eight. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, those who would live with him, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So what had emerged in, in Roman culture was there was beginning to be some things to look to take care of widows, some laws and some things that were looking to take care. So it's like, look, if the pagans who don't know God are realizing we need to make sure and take care of these women in our society, he's like, and you who were sought out by a God when you were helpless and needy, who sought you out and rescued you. If you can't also see that you should care for your family, then you have abandoned the faith. You're worse than an unbeliever. Remember in, in Mark 10, excuse me, Mark 7, Jesus is talking to some of the religious leaders. And what they would do is they would say, all of the things that I own, all of my money and all of my resources, right, I've devoted them to God. So sorry, Dad, I can't take care of you. It belongs to God. And what was allowed was they were actually able to keep their resources, but because they've earmarked it, devoted it to God, right? They don't have to, to do anything they don't want to do with it. And so they were being hypocrites. They're saying, I'm honoring God by dishonoring my family. And so Jesus says, you're hypocrites. This is not what I want for you. Even pagans know to take care of their family. So he says, look, if you don't do these things, you have denied the faith and you are worse than an unbeliever. And then the fourth reason that he initially starts with, hey, I want the family to step up, repaying your parents, pleasing God, expressing faith that you believe this. The fourth one is in verse 16. If any believing woman has relatives who are, who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. And so the fourth is this, that if you can, 
take care of them so that the church has the resources to care for those who have no other option, right? Don't just assume that they'll do your job if you're able to do it. But in verse 11, he mentions some widows who need to be left off before we go back to those who are truly widows. He says, but refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and they will incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. So what he's referring to is here is this, because he's actually already encouraged remarriage. He's not saying that remarriage is gonna bring condemnation. What has happened is that for, for whatever reason in society, some younger women have lost their husbands. They are at a remarried, like probably going to have kids age. And they're realizing, man, if the church will just fund my lifestyle, I can have some freedom in society. And so sensuality was becoming a part of their lifestyle. Um, idleness was becoming part of their lifestyle. And they're just spending their days, as Paul says, as busybodies and his gossips going from house to house, saying things they shouldn't do, living a lifestyle that does not reflect that they know Jesus. Because they're, they're pursuing men and pursuing relationships that are inappropriate. And he says, so here's what's going to happen. You're going you're to say you're a widow. The church is going to give you money to, to take care of you. And it's going to look like the church is funding this sinful lifestyle. And at some point, you're going to decide, I want to marry one of these unbelievers that I've been... Um, currently been pursuing and you're going to take his religion and you're going to walk away from Jesus entirely and you're going to heap condemnation upon your head because you're going to have left behind your faith you're going to left behind what you claim to believe and what you're asking the church to do and so he says church I don't want you to give them freedom to live this way they need to remarry to, to rebuild a household I don't want them to, and, and so we'll see in 2 Timothy in chapter 3 that a lot of these women, what ends up happening, these younger widows, is they end up following the false teachers. And then they are carrying the false deception around from household to household because they're not living as Paul has called them to live. They're living these self indulgent lifestyles. So what Paul is saying is look, if you're willing to live this way, you don't know Jesus anyway. Right, the, the, what Jesus has called us to is self-denial, not self-indulgence. That you're not rightly reflecting the image of God in this lifestyle is contradicting your very faith. So he said, look, if, a, if a, there's widows and the family can take care of them, family do it. If there are widows who are young, they need to remarry. They need to, to reestablish a household and not just live off the church for years and years to come. And which brings us back then to verse 3, those who are truly widows. Honor widows who are truly widows. And that takes us to verse 9. So he says, I want you, let a widow be enrolled, put her on the list. If she's at least 60 years of age, she's been the wife of a, one husband, and she has the reputation for good works. That, that word there, the wife of one husband, does not assume that it's been one marriage her entire life. It's, it's the same phrase that we saw when Paul was writing about elders and deacons. It's a one-woman man, right, that remarriage has potentially been a part of it, but that he has been faithful. He is always 
The woman he is with, he was married to, he is faithful to her. He does not have roving eyes and roving heart. He's not pursuing emotional or physical relationships with other women. And so the same here is for the widow. There's potentially been remarriage in her past, but that she was faithful to the man that she was married to when she was married to him. That she would be at least 60 years of age, right? That she's an older woman, right? She's probably not going to get remarried at this point. She's probably not going to go find a new job or a new career at this point, knowing that the life stage, um, life expectancy was much lower, that she would have been a much older woman culturally relative than, than 60 years is now, and that she has a reputation for good works. And so he begins to list some of them. He says, look, if she's brought up children, she's shown hospitality, she's washed the feet of the saints, right? She's been a humble servant. She's cared for the afflicted. She's devoted herself to every good work. So what he's saying is, in the visible ways that you can know that she loves Jesus, that she's walking in the image of Jesus, that she's reflecting the mission to the world, she's done it in the ways that were culturally appropriate, that it was obvious and visible to all around her that she was a faithful and godly woman. So he says, if, the, if there are women in the church that meet this criteria, put them on the list. Take care of them. Right? You're honoring them, and that's what I'm calling you to do is to make sure they're taken care of. And, and a byproduct of that is they're going to continue to be freed up to love and to minister and to serve in these humble ways that they've been doing for the rest of their prior life. So what I think it's important to note in our current political culture is that these aren't general handouts, right? That there are some circumstances matter, that there's legitimate need, that there's a godly reputation. He's not just saying, look, if they don't have a husband, just give them money. That the, the, the church has a limited amount of ability to help, and so he is giving them guidelines for how to best serve the women in their, in their congregation and in their community. So listen, you're probably thinking, why on earth are we talking about widows? Right, like this feels so off and foreign. But there are some principles here for us. One, we will continue um, until Jesus returns. There will always be widows that meet this criteria. But ultimately, the type of situation that he's referring to may also be single parents. It may be those who have been affected at the hands of abuse. It may be immigrants. It may be those in the foster care situation. Right? It's those that are currently in our culture that don't have much of a safety net. They don't really have the ability to affect their situation, and they are in a precarious scenario. Right? That we're supposed to have eyes for them, to see them, to take care of them, to make sure that we are living in a way that reflects the image of a God who sought us out when we were hopeless and helpless and unable to change our spiritual situation that he rescued us. There's no room for pride here where we elevate ourselves and look at someone and say, who am I going to help today from on high? But it is fellow, as, as, as fellow servants of the king, as fellow recipients of his grace, that this is not done in pride, but as a family, that we would serve and take, take care. And so the church for a long time has used the word family. But sometimes that word doesn't have a lot of punch to it. We just, it's just a word we use. But he has called us to be family for real. 
to lock arms and to move forward and to carry burdens for one another, to be family. Remember when Jesus is teaching and his mother and siblings come up and they say, Jesus, your family is outside. And and he says something really kind of controversial and provocative. He says, those who do the will of the father, my brothers and sisters and mother, right? And he was not condemning his family. He was simply saying, my family is larger than what you think it is. And that I'm going to pursue and know and love them in those same, same type of ways. So church, just a couple quick things as we finish this morning. Some practical steps for us as you think about this section on widows. We are called as believers to be people who notice others and to then include them. To see hurt and need and loss and lack and to bring them in. In Psalm 68, we hear this about God. Verse 5. He is the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. And God settles the solitary into a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity and the rebellious dwell in a parched land. He says, like, I'm going to protect them. I'm going to defend them. I see them and I'm going to put them in families. Anyone who's alone. Church, that we have to be a place where we see the needs of those around us, emotionally, spiritually, financially, in every aspect of life, and say, how do we bring you in, not as a second-class citizen, but as a member of our family? Right, like that God, when he, brings, when he rescues us, he saves us, and he says, you're mine, you're my son, you're my daughter, you belong to me, and you get it all. He doesn't say, well, you acted better than this one, so you get a little more salvation. There, there's not. It's, it, we get God's love, and we get his salvation, period. And so as a church, as we're reflecting God's character, are we noticing people, and are we including people, and are we drawing them in and saying, you get to be a part of this family? And this family is present, and it's here in time of need, and in time of joy, and in the mundane in between. So a second thing, quickly, is that we need to quit assuming that everyone we see, that everything is good. Right? We live in a culture, especially in West Texas, that is very self-reliant and independent. We've pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps, and we don't need nobody's help. And so because we feel that, and we've been taught that, and we think that, we look at others, and we assume, unless things are obviously falling apart, you must be okay. And we need to quit assuming that all is well. Listen, difficulty, struggle, spiritually, mental health, suffering, all of these things do not care about the street and town that you live on. It is not limited to only certain parts of our community. It does not care about your current socioeconomic status. It does not care about your ethnicity. It does not care that you live in West Texas and you're not allowed to say and feel these things. That we have to be a place where we can be vulnerable and real and expect that people have something they need to say. There's something that they need to be a burden that needs to be borne alongside them. Instead of assuming everyone's just got it together and they're good. And unless you come knocking on my door, I'm going to just assume everything's okay. That we would be noticers and includers. I don't think noticers is a word. Um... English teachers are going to yell at me. Um, That we would quit assuming that all is well with everyone because it's most likely not. 
And in this process that we are going to be both givers and receivers. That you do not get to stand on high and say, I will pass it out and I will never receive. And you also don't get to be one that says, I'll take it all in and I'll never give back. Right? That the widows are receiving because they have lived a life that they have given and have this godly reputation. As we think about hospitality, that hospitality is not performing for others, but is bringing people into our family. And so if you show up at a family gathering, right, in a, in a healthy family, everyone's involved somehow, right? People are taking the kids, people are doing the dishes, people are setting the table, people are, right? It's a, it's a communal event. Y'all, church life has to be communal, right? It has to be where we are both receiving and giving. That we're not just the one who's always giving the prayer requests, that we're also praying for others. That we're not just receiving hospitality, that we are giving hospitality, that we are serving. Here's what's at stake, our pride. Right, that you think, I don't want to need help. I don't want to ask for help. I don't want to humble myself in that regard. But we have been called to live out the one and others of scripture together. We've been called to be a family. And that means that people know you, they know you really. Your family knows you. Your faults and the things that you wish you could hide, and you're, you're good. They see it all. This has to be family. Where you don't think that person is elevated and they don't struggle and they don't sin, so I can never talk to them that way, that we are vulnerable and real with one another. And listen, that also means that not all widows or all single parents or all whatever category of people need and want the same response, right? So we have to learn to be gracious because some people want you to, they want you to be there to hold their hand and some people need a little distance and some people need, right? Like we, we have to be gracious to one another asking, how can I serve you? How can I love you? And knowing it can change. It can ebb and it can flow. Church, what, what, 1 Timothy 5 is giving us is an opportunity to bear one another's burdens, to truly be family with no second-class folks, to give dignity and life to all, not because of what they're contributing, but because they are made in the image of God. So it's not, if you're useful to me now, I'll give you care, but as soon as you need care for too long, I'm done with you. But you have value because you've been created in the image of our Heavenly Father. And it will cost you something, right? It's going to cost you time and energy and emotion. It's going to cost you some pride as you are the ser- like the humble server and as you receive it. But it was going to be an opportunity for us to rightly reflect the image of God who has pursued us, who has loved us, who has known us, who has been vulnerable with us, and who has made us sons and daughters in his family. And so this morning, here's the last thing, and we're done. Would we begin to ask him to give us eyes to see people? Because that's the the point of 1 Timothy. Would we be a place of worship where we're honoring God, and so we're asking him to give us eyes to see one another? And as we love and serve one another, that we see one another, as we become family, that we are worshiping God, it's pleasing to him for us to do that. And the second aspect is, is would you give us eyes to see our community and the needs that are there? Because that puts us on mission to bring them into the family, which is pleasing to God. Those are our roles, to be family, 
worshiping and honoring God, and to be on mission, bringing more in to worship and honor God and be a part of our family. And so as you think of widows, when you ask God to open your eyes to notice people now and here, let's pray. Jesus, we, we confess that often we're really good at getting in a rhythm and just doing our thing for those that we absolutely have to take care of for the rhythms of our life. As we think about school starting and the, and the hecticness and the busyness that comes, Father, would you, would you give us eyes to see those around us, those that we just assume that everything is okay because they haven't said anything. And God, would you give us grace as we, as we struggle to figure out what does it look like for this place to really be family, where I can say what's really on my heart, where I can be vulnerable, where I can share the, the fear in my mind, where I can share the, my doubt, where I can share my struggle, where I can share my pain. And that, Lord, that we would learn that those things, when we, when we sit and hold someone's hand, that when we visit them, when we take care of physical needs, Lord, that those things are pleasing to you and they're honoring to you and that those things are worship, not just in our preaching, not just in our singing, not even just in our praying, that you have called us together, that you have torn down the walls that divide us in Christ and you have made us a family. So, Father, we want this family, this place, to please you as you look at it that we would have cousin relationships at Redeemer and we would have aunt and uncle relationships and we would have parent and grandparent relationships. Father, knowing that we're not gonna be best friends with everyone, but that doesn't mean we're not family and that we're not gonna love and serve and know as we strive after you, looking to make sure our whole family gets to the promised land with you. So Father, give us eyes to see and give us grace to live. In Jesus' name. Amen.